This podcast makes no representations. None of this constitutes advice and your home or property may be repossessed if you do not keep up with repayments on your mortgage. Hello and welcome back to Not Another Mortgage Podcast. Myself, Joshua Smith, and the bearded broker himself, Lewis Shaw, is with me. Good afternoon. Hi, Josh. How are you? Are you well? I'm, I'm very well, mate. I'm very well. Enjoying the sunshine. It's been lovely, hasn't it? It's been lovely. Although, that said, I went for my haircut and a, and a beard trim uh, on uh, on Tuesday, and it was such nice weather that I thought, you know what? I'll walk it to the barbers and uh, get some food on the way back, walk home. And I, I live up quite a steep hill. Uh, it's probably about three quarters of a mile and it was beautiful when I went out and then I went home had my hair caught really really you know kind of walking around like a peacock and uh, and then the heavens opened and I went home and I was absolutely soaking I was in my flip-flops so I slipped over twice going up the hill um so it was a barrel alas but other than that anyway what's that got to do with this <laughs> but yeah I'm good thanks mate I'm just amazed you your hair trimmed at all to be honest it's um it needed it I honestly I look like Hagrid very yeah. very Tom Baker in Blackadder style beard um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's that way. <laughs> <laughs> so I look like Brian Blessed, so I'm not complaining. Right. Uh, let's get on with mortgages then, shall we? So today we're going to be talking about everything you need to know about buying a home. It's one of those things everybody in life expects to do and, and aims to do. And it seems everybody uh, seems to do over a certain age. Um, but it's not as simple as you may think. And there's a minefield of things uh, that we have to navigate. And Lewis is here to talk us through all of the different things we need to consider. So Lewis, I suppose the best place to start is from from the beginning we're not there's no point talking about what to do once you've bought it let's talk about buying a house uh, from start to finish yeah sure so i mean this particular podcast will be relevant for both first-time buyers and also people that are, are wanting to take the next step but it's predominantly aimed at first-time buyers but there's going to be things in here that are relevant for a lot of people hopefully so when it comes to buying a home um one of the first things i would say to anyone that's potentially thinking about buying a home is maybe keep it to yourself and now this seems a bit of an odd thing to say, but hear me out. So often, if you say, I'm thinking about moving or I'm thinking about buying my first home, typically, everyone and the granddad will want to give you advice because they want to, well, we know that people like to give people advice. It makes them feel good and kind of they feel as though they've got some knowledge and they may have. That's not to say that they won't have. But of course, you'll get a lot of conflicting information from Dave down the pub and Shirley at the hairdressers and whatever it might be. And it can be quite contradictory. It can be quite confusing for people, especially, of course, for first-time buyers in particular, uh, it can be especially confusing because, of course, there's going to be certain people in your life that you listen to, typically your parents, um, probably your other half, your other half's parents if you're buying as a couple. Um, It may be that you've got a friend that's recently purchased or... Uh, it could be your uncle that maybe used to be an estate agent 20 years ago. And all these people can start telling you what they, they did, what you should do, and how and how to go about the process. The problem with that is that often it's wrong. It's just out and out wrong. And two, what may have been the case, for example, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, when they were buying a home, is probably, probably not the case now. So that's the reason I would say try and probably keep it to yourself initially. So in terms of steps that you would take, ordinarily, I would say the first part of the process would always be to pick a good mortgage broker. And now I'll say from the off, this doesn't have to be me. It doesn't have to be me because you have to be comfortable with the broker 
that you're going to use. You have to like what they're doing. You have to probably check out the reviews. You have to have a look at a different, uh, a couple of, of people, two or three people, maybe, you know, have a look at the websites, what resources they offer. And do you think fundamentally that you're going to get on with them? Because it, 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 it does matter. It does matter. So it would be initially to, to pick which mortgage advisor, which mortgage broker, and those terms are interchangeable. They mean the same thing. You're going to use. And then it would be to have a chat. So initially, if first-time buyers make an inquiry via my website, which is where the, the bulk of first-time buyers come from, they'll I'll often get an email saying something like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about buying a home. Um, I'm thinking that I'd like to do that sooner rather than later, but I'm not sure where to start. That's a typical kind of inquiry that again, because of course, unless you've done this before, you wouldn't know, which is understandable. So what would happen then? I would have an initial phone call and we would talk through the very basics. How much deposit do you have in, in terms of pounds and pence rather than as a percentage? How much deposit do you have? Where does that come from? Where does that come from? One of the questions that I often get asked is why does it matter where the deposits come from? And that's because of the anti-money laundering checks that we have to run both myself and the solicitors and now estate agents. In fact, this is something that I'll come on to, but so there's a lot of anti-money laundering regulation, understandably, to prevent financial crime. So we have to know exactly where that deposits come from. So it can be your savings. It could be that it's a gift from parents or grandparents, or it could be a combination. Now, um, if it is a gift from parents or grandparents, we would ordinarily need to see the money going from parents' account or grandparents' account into your account. We may have to do kind of AML checks on those people as well. So if you are getting a gift, make sure you make the people that are gifting you aware that that it's likely I or a solicitor is going to have to perform due diligence on them as well because we have to do that for compliance purposes. So one, it would be what deposit do you have and where is it coming from? Two, what's your employment status? Are you employed? Are you self-employed? Etc. And then we'd kind of get into the nitty gritty of what they were looking to do. So the first thing to do is when they come in for appointments, I'd say, right, well, now we've got that kind of basic information, come in for appointment, bring all your documentation with you, and then we'll sit down. And in that first appointment, we'd cover off what the actual purchase process is. We'd cover off how much the, how much they could borrow as a maximum. Uh, what that might look like as a cost and over how long they might want that. Um, But the biggest um, benefit to that first appointment is to properly, properly nail down the budget. Now, as we all know, mortgage lenders base what you can borrow upon one, one, your earnings. uh, And that also takes into account two, your outgoings, three, uh, your general credit commitments, but four as well, do you have any kind of financial dependence? Now, every single mortgage lender has their own affordability calculation and calculator. And they're reasonably accurate. <clears throat> I mean, I wouldn't, but for a start, I would say this. If you're a first-time buyer and you're looking online and you see these kind of affordability calculators, uh, you know, um, I wouldn't set too much store by them because the lender ones that are actually used uh, are far more complex. So we'd set down the budget. How much can you borrow? And and, and I'm, I'm quite... Um, hot on this in terms of that's your deposit, that's your income, this is all the rest of it. And that means that your budget is X. And if I say your budget is X, it means it's not X plus a fiver or X plus a thousand, it's X and not a pound more. And the reason you have to kind of set that budget at the outset is to prevent disappointment. Now, there's been numerous times over over the period that I've been doing this job where people have not done that first step. They've gone out, 
assumed they'll be able to get the mortgage, whatever it might be, to buy the property that they want. <coughs> Excuse me. And then find out later down the line when they have had an offer accepted with an estate agent that actually they can't get the mortgage or that it's going to be more expensive than they could actually afford or, uh, you know, a whole host of reasons why they actually can't proceed. And that can lead to, you know, quite a lot of disappointment, to be fair, because, of course, if you you found something and you set your store, you know, you set your heart on it and, and, you, and you kind of wanted to buy it, then that can be quite disappointing. So it's really imperative that that first appointment takes place to avoid disappointment. But two, it also puts you in the strongest possible position to buy that home. <clears throat> and this is why. I'll just have a quick sip of tea because I've got a frog in my throat. So, well, he's, well, he's having a sip of tea. I'll I'll jump in with a question, shall I? To bridge the gap, um, <coughs> what uh, what would you say about deposit limits? Because a lot of people seem to race to that five percent, and then it can all go a little bit pear shaped. Or is that is that just my interpretation of things? Um, <clears throat> so five percent is the minimum that you would require. Well, that's required. Well, that's not quite true. There are a couple of lenders that do what are called family assist mortgages, where you can get a hundred percent borrowing, but what would normally need to happen is that a family member, typically either parents or grandparents, who own a home that's usually unencumbered, which means there's no borrowing against it, they can put their house up as collateral. A mortgage lender can take a charge of probably 20 25% over that property and then use that as the security to advance you, for, for example, 100% of the mortgage to buy a property. Now, that is quite a niche little area. It does exist, but... It's not mainstream by any stretch of the imagination. Um, <clears throat> so the majority of the people need typically a 5% deposit. Now, just because uh, the minimum is 5% doesn't mean you should aim for 5 I mean, of course, that's if that's what you can get together, that's what you can get together. That's fine. Now, I've got to say, though, if you are wanting to buy with the smallest deposit, you do you, your credit does have to be really, really great. You can't have bad credit at 95%. Even with the current um, mortgage guarantee scheme, the government are guaranteeing the lender, not the borrower. So the current 95% deals that came out initially when the government said we're going to help people get on the property ladder because you know the uh, first-time buyers have been you know, uh, done over a little bit during the pandemic because you know, at one point, the, the deposit limits were, were, were quite, quite significant. Um, now, the government are um, backstopping the lender, not the borrower. So there's been cases where, you know, first-time buyers turn up and they may have had some kind of adverse credit in the in the past, in the last six years. And we have to say, unfortunately, because of that, you're not going to meet, or, you know, you're not going to meet their, their lending criteria or you're not going to pass their credit score. And some borrowers get confused and say, but it's, it's backstopped by the government. Or, you know, it's the, the government say it's guaranteed, but it's guaranteed for the lender, not the borrower. If you actually read the terms and conditions of that, it does say it's about credit-worthy borrowers. So you still have to have excellent credit at five. And to be fair, you still have to have decent credit at 10%, although it does start to slacken there and thereafter. Now, so uh, where was I? Well, so I was picking up. So after the affordability... In terms of putting yourself in the best possible position, ideally, we would get, once we've got all your documents in, we would get what's called an agreement in principle. Now, this goes by three different acronyms, AIP, agreement in principle, DIP, or a DIP, decision in principle, or MIP, mortgage in principle. 
They all mean the same things. And what they are is a credit search or a credit reference by a lender to say, yes, at the at the baseline, you meet our criteria. So that'll be things like, are they happy with your credit profile? Are you old enough? Do you earn enough? Uh, do you have enough uh, surplus income to be able to afford this mortgage in principle? Now, of course, that's subject to being able to prove that at application stage. But an agreement in principle is a good starting point. And it's good for two reasons. One, it gives you the surety and security that you've got that in your back pocket. And it takes away that um, element of doubt of, will I be able to get the mortgage? So it's, it's, a, it's a really good marker that the likelihood is, is, is that you're going to be good to go. The second point is, <clears throat> and this comes to the, the kind of prior preparation that, that, I, that I do harp on about to, to people all the time, is that when you come to actually find a property, because the next step after the agreement principle would be to go and, and house hunt, when you actually find a property that you, that you like and that you want to make an offer on, at the moment, it's very, very competitive. So if you're up against 10 other buyers and 10 other buyers have got agreements in principle and 10 other buyers know what solicitors they're using and they've got all the documents ready and they know which mortgage advisor they're, they're using and they, you know, they're confident that they can proceed. If you turn up and you've not got all that kind of stuff, if you imagine if you were a seller, if you were selling your home, would you sell it to the person that's prepared or not prepared? It's a, it's a pretty easy choice, I would think, for most people. And even if, if someone turns up, they're not prepared, even if they're kind of going way above in terms of the, the actual purchase price, a decent estate agent would be saying, no, 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 no. We, you're saying this, but you can't prove it to us. How do we know you can actually get this? Whereas all these other people who are prepared and have done it the right way, we know they can, they, they, we know that they are good to go. So we're not going to listen to your offer. So that's why preparation, I honestly can't overemphasize this enough. Preparation matters so much, so much. So I'll just recap. So we've, We've done the well, first I just want to meeting. jump in on that point because you, you mentioned in the in the last podcast about um, people missing things they never had, and you were talking about when they find that dream house and then they realise they can't afford it and they feel that sense of loss. And you were saying, well, they'd never really had it, uh, but it's something we do naturally, isn't it? So again, with with this scenario, it might be a house that they can afford. Actually, you know, slightly different scenario. They can afford this house and it's their dream house, but they can't get the deal done in time and they feel that sense of loss again. So it's just again. Uh, you talk about being prepared. It just saves you all that heartache and wasted time as well because they could spend weeks or months looking for, finding, and trying to buy the right house to be told, well, they're ready to go and you're not. And then you've got to start the whole process all over again. If you start that process when you're actually ready, you're not wasting your own time or anybody else's. Exactly. And also, you're going into it in a very, very informed position. I mean, people that pe- people that come to my office when they leave tend to know exactly what the budget up to is, how much that's likely to cost them, the probably, to a certain extent, probably the deal that they're going to be looking at. Um, they're going to know exactly what the legal costs are. They're going to know exactly what the costs are for a survey. They're going to know exactly what the costs are for using me. There's nothing that's left unknown. Because, of course, it's really important that people uh, aren't misled that everything is clear and transparent and fair and upfront because that's really important. It's very important to me, to be fair, to make sure that people understand what they're getting themselves into. And whilst it's my job and I do take responsibility for the advice I've given, of course, I'm I'm regulated and authorised by the Financial Conduct Authority. I've got certain things I have to uphold. 
um, and make sure that what I'm doing is in a customer's best interest. Nevertheless, I want to make sure that they understand what they're doing because ultimately it is the contract to which they're entering into. And I want to make sure that, that people understand that, you know, because it's, it's the best thing uh, for them to be able to understand that. So, so there are, um, there are elements of personal responsibility, but nevertheless, I do have to take responsibility for the advice that I give. That's just part and parcel of the job. Now, with regards to the actual process, so we've had the first meeting, we've got the agreement in principle, and you're out there looking for a house. Now, <clears throat> one thing to say when it comes to making offers is it's not always about who offers the most. It's about who presents the offer in the right way and, and an offer that's fair and reasonable. Now, at the moment, with house prices really rocketing away, I think, um, in fact, I think the Halifax house price index is uh, is out. I think it's either today or to, could be tomorrow, actually. Um, and that tells us <clears throat> month on month, you know, what the kind of property market is doing. I have, have property prices risen, have they dropped, what's happening? And, and over the last 12 months, they've risen and risen and risen. Now, one of the things that you should try and avoid as a first-time buyer is try to avoid getting into a bidding war. I always try to impress this upon people. A house is worth what you're willing to pay for it. Now, let, let me just caveat that. Subject to a charter surveyor agreeing on behalf of the mortgage lender. When I say it's worth what you're willing to pay for, I don't mean that you could pay any, any amount. What I mean is, if, for example, you see a home and it's on the market for 130, 150, for, for, call it 150 for the sake of round numbers. If you think, well, that house to me is worth 140, then make an offer of 140. But then don't go, oh, actually, 142, 144. Make your mind up what you would be willing to pay for it and then stick to that and don't exceed it. Because let's not forget, an estate agent's job is to get as much money for the person that's selling the house as possible. So I'm not suggesting here that estate agents do anything wrong because, you know, there's, like anything, there's good estate agents and there's bad estate agents. We all know of some of the tricks that they used to use where they'd say, oh, well, there's someone else that's made an offer of X or blah, 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 and trying to kind of bump you up and, oh, actually, they've already had an offer over that. Or Now, of course, you never know whether they're telling the truth or not. I suspect the majority of them are telling the truth um, because they're not the deceptive people that a lot of people think they are. Um, but nevertheless, their job is to get as much money out of you as possible because they're working on behalf of the other person. So that's why I try to say to people, you know, you decide what you're willing to pay for it and stick to it. Because once you've moved away from that, here's the thing, psychologically, if you've said, I'm, I'm going to stick at 140, if someone can then push you to 140 and 500, they've got you onto the treadmill. They know now, they know now that you probably can afford a bit more. <clears throat> they know now that you do want the house and now you're onto that treadmill. You're, you're onto that treadmill and that's going to keep walking up. It's going to start at 140, 500 and then it'll be 142. And actually, oh, do you know what I mean? They want a bit more and then you've gone to 144. And before you know it, you're 150. You've paid now £10,000 than what you said you started out when you wanted to spend. <laughs> so you do have to be <clears throat> careful with that. Um, now, of course, at some point, you'll find the house that you want, that you love, and you'll make the offer. And at some point, it'll be accepted. Now, that might be the third or fourth offer that you make. It tends not to be the first one. 
But once that happens, a number of things will happen. So I shall say this uh, as well, because this is something that um, all buyers need to know, actually. So HMRC, uh, the people that deal with all the taxes, et cetera, in the UK, they decided that they wanted a bit more oversight over kind of property transactions. So whilst I have to do a lot of due diligence on customers and a solicitor has to do a lot of due diligence on customers, estate agents have now been mandated by HMRC to do the same kind of level. So this is another reason to get prepared. So in order to take an offer from you, an estate agent will need proof of ID, proof of address, proof of an agreement in principle, proof of deposit, and who your solicitors are going to be for the actual transaction. They'll need that just to take an offer from you. That's the actual legal process. Now, often, you know, you probably don't carry around all those documents with you. So if you've been to see me, so for example, you know, I had a chap in the other day, um, got all the documents off him. He made an offer. The estate agent came back and said, oh, I want all these. And within five minutes, they'd got everything, every single thing they'd got, that they, that, that they wanted, they'd got. Because if, of course, it's all on my laptop. Um, that can also make a difference because <clears throat> if you're in a bidding war or, or you're kind of up against it and you can get there straight away, often it's not who's best, it's often who's first. So again, preparation of having the documentation, of me having the documentation on file. So that actually, when you make that offer, I can ping all that across straight away to the estate agent. Happy days. So we're separate now. So we've done the we've done the meeting, we've done the agreement to principle, you've found a house, you've made the offer. It's been accepted, and then we need to actually make the mortgage application. So a few things happen here all at once. So one, we would instruct solicitors. Uh, That means saying, I'm buying this house via this estate agent for this price. This is my my mortgage lender that I'm using. Uh, Here are my personal details. And we instruct the solicitors, and they're going to then want a few things. They're going to want proof of ID and proof of address. They're going to want uh, proof of funding, i.e. your your deposit. And then they're going to want you to fill in what's typically called called a a client care pack. And that will usually include something like a letter of engagement or confirmation of terms of business from that solicitor saying, you know, who who they are, how they work, what they charge, et cetera, in in a a broken down fashion. Uh, So you can see all the ways, because there's various elements to it. in terms of in terms of the costs when it comes to buying a home, and the solicitors solicitors kind of uh, quotation will contain lots and lots of different bits. So there'll be the actual legal fee that you're paying for the for the solicitor to do the work on your behalf. But then there's lots of little bits of add-ons, things like bankruptcy searches, ID and AML checks, um, land registry costs, potentially stamp duty depending on the price that you buy at. Um, there would be um, search packs to be put to be purchased. So we instruct solicitors, and at the same point in time, once we've instructed the solicitors, we, we then uh, give the actual mortgage advice. So that's the point at which we go right, because then we've got then we're working with accurate figures, concrete figures, a definitive property. So you're buying number one A High Street for one hundred and fifty thousand pounds, and it's built out of of uh, brick and block, and it's got a tiled roof. Um, and it's a three-bed, semi-detached house. We know exactly what the house is. We know exactly what the price is. And so then we can get down to the kind of nitty-gritty of the actual mortgage. Now, often, between the time frame of getting an agreement in principle and finding a home, particularly deals will change. 
So it may be that you've got, for example, an agreement in principle with ABC Mortgage Lender, but then by the time you've had an offer accepted, it may be but that for the amount of money that you need to buy, uh, borrow, sorry, um, and over the term of which that's going to take place, actually now, 123 Mortgage Lender is now actually the best deal. So if you imagine, I think at the last count, there's something like, I don't know, mainstream 65, 70-odd lenders. There's probably, there are a few more, but we're kind of, you'd be getting into the realms of quite specialist and niche stuff. But broadly speaking, say 60-odd lenders. If each one of those lenders amends one product per month, that's 60 new products in the 30-day period or two products a day. Now, bear in mind that the likelihood is, is that they'll probably change five a month. You can imagine that if that's the case, that the, 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 the deal that was, is best for you has likely changed from the point at which we got the agreement in principle to the point at which we make the application. I mean, I have had it, just as an aside before, where, for example, I've got someone in an agreement in principle. Um, they wanted to know if they could, they, they could get accepted for a mortgage. And then they took that agreement in principle um, direct to a lender because they didn't want to pay my fee. That has happened. Little did they know that they ended up paying about 4,000 quid more in interest over the f- first five years because, because actually at the time that they'd had their offer accepted, it was a far better deal with a different lender. They thought they were being clever by saving 499 pounds, which is what I charge, uh, but actually it cost them about four and a half grand over the five years because um, they ended up on a, on a worse deal um, than they needed to, just because deals have changed. It shows so, lots of shopping around because it seems to the untrained eye that it's much of a muchness. Everyone offers similar rates and, and things, but that's that's a huge amount. Yeah, yeah, and it, it can be. I mean... Uh, the, the 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 amount of interest that's generated a mortgage because it's compound interest and it's charged on a daily basis, um, and this is not meaning to be rude to anyone, but most people it's difficult to get your head around compound compound interest. It just is, and especially when it's being charged daily on a decreasing rate because the mortgage is coming down over time. It's not easy to understand. It's just not. And 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 why would it be? You know, it's not most people's jobs. It's not for most people. But it's a small change in interest rate, uh, especially when you're borrowing, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of pounds, can make a significant difference over, say, four or five years, well, three three to five years. Um, and it's odd sometimes when, um, when you kind of... I suppose the reason is, is that because... Because it's not as though I'm coming, it's not, it's not like I'm coming in and reaching into your bank and just nicking four grand off you. You, you tend not to see it. Although, of course, if I did come and put my hand into your bank account and take four grand out, you'd probably be quite annoyed. But my job, of course, as a mortgage broker is to, is to, is to stop a bank doing that to you, to taking away more money than is necessary. That is my part and parcel of my job. Lewis, if you can anyway. find a four grand in my bank account, then you're welcome to it. <laughs> yeah, same for me, to be honest at the minute, mate. Um, Anyway, so we've we get to the point where we've had the meeting, agreement in principle, you've you've found the home, you've had the offer accepted, we've instructed the solicitors, and we're making the mortgage application. That's the point at which the advice is delivered. And that will be what's the lender, what's the deal, over how long, how much is it going to cost, and what are the terms and conditions that come with that particular deal. We go through what's called a mortgage illustration. It tends to have between kind of 10 and 14 points that runs through various, you know, various kind of um bits that you need to know. Uh, so, for example, 
What happens if interest rates rise? Uh, are there any early repayment charges? Are there any fees applicable? Uh, if so, for how long? Is there any cashback? Do you have to pay for a survey? All that kind of stuff. So that's the point at which we'll actually get into the actual nitty gritty and explain all that. And as long as we're happy with that, and obviously go through that with the customer, say, yeah, happy with that. Then we apply for the mortgage. Uh, and of course, the reason we'd instruct solicitors slightly before we'd apply for the mortgage is because when we submit the mortgage application to the lender, we have to put in the solicitor's details of the firm, their address, and the actual acting conveyancer, you know, Mr. Joe Bloggs um, of abcsolicitors.co.uk. Um, so we've made the mortgage application. That's gone into the the uh, the, uh, the lender, and then they're going to ask for it to be packaged. That's jargon. And that means that they're going to ask for certain documents, which is why we collect all the documents up front so that we've got them on file, we've done the due diligence, we know that they're going to be acceptable. We then submit the documents that the lender requires, and then that goes into underwriting. Once that's happened, we'd get the survey instructed. So the surveyor, now here's the thing, the surveyor doesn't work for the lender. They are what's called panelled out. So, for example, um, Halifax use a company called eServe for their, for their surveying. Uh, NatWest use legal and general surveying services. Um, Skipton will typically, typically use Connells. Um, and it can be a mixture. So the surveyors don't work... Um, for the lenders, they're effectively contracted. It's, it's as though, you know, someone, you know, someone from Halifax rings up and says, "I want you to go and survey property one A High Street for this person." Uh, they've, they've decided that it's that it's worth one hundred and fifty thousand pounds. So that surveyor works for a specific company. He goes and has a look at it, then he writes a report and sends it back to the lender. So there is a there is a a, a, um, a differentiation between the mortgage lender and the surveyor, and that's something that perhaps people didn't realise. Now the surveyor goes out. And he'll check out one the local area, two is the is it worth what you're willing to pay for it, and three is it structurally sound? Does it look as though it's uh, not going to fall down? And is it what's called suitable security? That's again is is jargon, meaning does it fit a lender's policy? Now you'd be surprised of how many different construction types there are. Um, in fact, I had one recently uh, where it looked as though it was brick and block, and it turned out it was timber framed. Um, so those kind of things you, you can't know until the survey is done. So the survey writes his report, he sends it back to the lender. As long as the underwriter is happy with all the documentation and the explanation of the case, they'll then move to what's called offer. So that's when they issue a formally binding offer from them saying, yes, you can buy, you can borrow this amount of this amount of money over these this period of time to buy that house. And three copies of that offer will go out. One to one would come to me digitally one would go to the actual customer in the post typically some lenders send it now digitally and the third copy would go to the solicitors which are typically known in this instance as conveyances so they convey the property from one person to another so conveyancing conveyances they're the actual people that do the legal work when it comes to property so once the solicitors have received their copy of the mortgage offer. It will also contain a few other bits and bobs of documentation. Um, certainly the solicitor would check it if there's any kind of restrictions in the offer. So it may be that there's either a retention or an undertaking, or there may be kind of other special conditions attached to, to the offer that the solicitor has to check out. So it might be something to do with, you know, searches, or it could be to do with uh, certain kind of easements or covenants on the particular bits of land, etc. Um, that gets all quite technical. 
So that's to a certain extent the kind of mortgage process over with. We've got you to offer, and that's at the point where I go. Well, at that point, I kind of step back a little bit. I'm still here in the background, but I step back a little bit because I've done the bit. Typically, at the start, that's the most important bit because, of course, it doesn't matter how good the estate agent or solicitors are, unless you can get the actual borrowing, nothing's going to happen. So up until that point, I'm probably the most important, but thereafter, my importance goes away and then it becomes more important that the solicitor does their job, um, which will involve checking the searches. So they'll apply for searches. Now, searches are... Um, well, it's, it, it covers it, it covers a uh, it covers a kind of multitude of, of sins really. So, searches are things that are necessary with any property purchase um, when you're using when you're buying with a, with a mortgage. Now, you don't you wouldn't necessarily have to have them if you're buying by buying cash, um, but you you would typically uh, need them if you are if you're buying with a mortgage. So. Property searches uh, are carried out, as I say, on, on every house purchase. And it covers a number of searches, typically local government utilities, environmental agencies. Um, and the aim of any search is to provide you with information about any potential restrictions, benefits or conditions, which may affect the, the property and ultimately your use and enjoyment of it. So ordinarily, that comes as a pack, they tend to be two, three hundred pounds, and they buy them from third parties. So, for example, there's always a local authority search, uh, which is typically made up of two parts, um, the LLC one and the CON 29. Uh, they're normally submitted together uh, with a location plan by the solicitor. Um, so LLC one is a search of the local land charges register, and it will tell you a number of things. For example, uh, if the property is a listed building, if it's in a conservation or a smoke control zone, uh, if any trees on the property are protected by tree preservation orders, all that kind of stuff. Um the CON 29 will include things such as building control history, planning history, uh, nearby road and motorway schemes, if there's any contaminated land, radon gas, um, which is you know always comes up somewhere because radon gas lives in the ground. So they're the kind of local authority searches. Uh, then we'd move on to what is the water and drainage search, and that provides confirmation of whether uh, you know the property is connected to a public sewer or a septic tank septic tank or kind of other private facilities um if it's connected to a public or a private water supply and how the property is built for its water supply wastewater disposal that kind of stuff and it will also confirm um if the property is close uh, to or affected by water mains or public sewers and things like that uh, again the environmental search um an environmental search is a report carried out by a specialist environmental search company uh, that looks into the past land use in the area. So, you know, has you know, are they kind of methane gas um, releases because it's near near, uh, for example, a um, a tip there is in, in you know, or uh, are you close to? I mean, certainly in my area, kind of Mansfield, Ashfield, etc. Uh, there used to be a lot of mining. Um, so they check whether this land's going to you know any, any kind of contamination in the land. Um, uh, especially around the kind of environmental protection, environmental protection act of 1990, and it will also check the risks of floods um, and if there's kind of been historic flooding or if it's on a floodplain, uh, and also depending on the exact location, um, kind of look at energy and infrastructure and, and ground stability. Now, as I say, additional searches typically in this area, such as mining searches, tend to be required, um, but generally your solicitor, your conveyancer will kind of guide you if there are any additional uh, searches required. So they're, they're the searchers and they go out to third parties 
a solicitor has to just sit and wait for them to come back. Now, that can take some time. There's nothing really they can do in terms of speeding that process up. So they can be really, really quick, depending on where you live. But it can also take kind of up to eight weeks for those searches to come back. And until they do, there's not that much a solicitor can do. So they can do the kind of initial bit, get your docs in, get the contract from the from the vendor, um, kind of do all their initial checks. But until all those searches are in, there's not that much more that they can do, to be fair. Um, so the solicitors, let's assume now all the searches are back. Um, <clears throat> let's assume that the contract paperwork has been received from the from the sellers. So the seller's conveyancer, so on the other side, they draw up a legal contract to transfer ownership and will send to your conveyancer uh, any answers to any initial qu- questions that your solicitor uh, may have. Typically, it'll contain information on the properties, what's called title, um, and a, what's called a standards form, which will be completed by the uh, the seller. Um, now, <clears throat> as long as the contract's approved, uh, the conveyancer will check through all the details in your contract, negotiate with the seller's conveyancer to draw up the final version, and your conveyancer could raise uh, various inquiries, uh, which are questions, for example, that, that are based on the content of the contract. So, you know, is there kind of stuff to do with the, the double glazing? Uh, does there, has there been a... Uh, a test of the boiler uh, or you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and once they've got all that back, so they've had the mortgage offer back, they've had the researchers back, they've had the contract back and it's all been approved and all the kind of replies to any questions that your solicitor has asked of the other side, uh, you then basically get sent what's called a report to you as a customer uh, with documents to sign. So your solicitor will send you a detailed report concerning your property purchase and you'll need to sign that and return it confirm that you're happy with with all of its content. Now, when you receive all that information, there is an awful lot to take in. Now, I know that most people don't read it. To be fair, a good 99.9% of them are, would, to be fair, highlight any issues that crop up. However, as a buyer, you should be aware that fundamentally, a conveyancer's job is to say, right, here's all the information that we found out about this property. Are you happy with it? So you do need to read it. And it's, it's not always easy, but you should take the time to do that. So you've had all that back. You've signed it. You've sent it back. Uh, at that point, you would typically, this is when, so we're probably now kind of eight to 10 weeks into the process from when you actually made your offer on the property. Uh, as long as you have to proceed, then you'll make arrangements for the deposit to be transferred from you to your solicitor in readiness for the exchange of contracts. So people often ask, when, when do I need my deposit by? Where do I send it? The answer is quite, you know, to, to be fair, towards the end, and you would send it directly to the solicitor's bank account. It sits in the solicitor's bank account and you wait for exchange of contracts. Now, up until that point in time, even, even when you've actually sent your deposit, you can decide, do you know what? I no longer want to buy this house. You can say, you know, I've, I know I've spent money on searches, I've spent money on a mortgage broker and perhaps on a survey, et cetera. Uh, but actually, do you know what? I've decided I don't want to do it. And that's cool. At that point, you will have lost a bit of money, but you can turn around and say, do you know what? I'm not feeling it anymore. Call it a day. However, once the point of contracts being exchanged has happened, you know, all parties agree on a, on a, on a completion date and the contracts are formally exchanged. At this point, both parties are legally committed to the transaction. So up until that point of contracts exchanging, you can say, I don't want this anymore. Once those contracts have been exchanged, it's you are doing this now, and that's that. Um, so once that's happened, your conveyance prepares a completion statement and requests funds from the mortgage lender, 
so the mortgage lender then will release the funds. It'll go into the solicitor's account. That'll be combined with your deposit. And then it gets shipped across to the other side. So to the, to, to the seller's solicitor. Um, and on completion day, of course, the seller leaves the property. The keys are released for you to pick them up, usually from your estate agent. Uh, your conveyancer, as I say, will send the funds from your mortgage lender to the seller's conveyancer and then uh, sends the stamp duty payable to HMRC if there is any any liable. And after completion, you receive a copy, typically of the registered title from Land Registry. And that is the point at which you're done and dusted. So I know that's been a lot of me yapping there, but that is as much in depth as I reckon I can get without losing people. And I probably already have lost some people, but that is the process of buying a home. Lewis, thank you very much for all of that. Yes, there is a lot to digest there, but this is the beauty and this is why we we do this as a podcast because you can go back and listen to it again if there's something you missed, if you want to refresh your memory. Um, If you want to get in touch with any questions and answers, you can, of course, do that. Um, And we can always pick up on that on later podcasts and so on as well. So uh, yes, a lot to get through there, but you can listen back time and time again. Hopefully it will help you purchasing your property uh lewis thank you very very much for all of that we will be back next week uh looking at it from the opposite end of the spectrum selling a property and going yes. in just as much detail again i am sure indeed brilliant thank you again lewis take care have a great evening cheers mate see you later bye-bye